electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Leslie Picker. Cramer has the morning off. We're coming off the first three-day losing streak for the S&P of the year. Uh, Dow, those on track for a weekly gain. Ten-year yield still elevated above 131. Oil, though, back below 60 as the Texas grid operator says emergency conditions may end today. Our roadmap begins with Yellen's push for stimulus as the Treasury Secretary warns of risks ahead without significant relief. Then call it a short squeeze as the extreme weather adds to the production issue of semiconductor chips. And later, a regretful Robin Hood will break down what actually came out of yesterday's GameStop hearing. Carl. Guys, we're going to unpack all of that. But first, we're going to start with what Yellen uh, told our Sarah Eisen on Closing Bell yesterday about the stimulus, about the risk of doing too much versus too little. Here's what she said yesterday on Closing Bell. We're hoping to see progress over the next couple of weeks um, in enacting that package into law. Uh, President Biden has had uh, discussions uh, with uh, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. Would ideally like to see a bipartisan support for a package that we think is really what we need to deal with the pandemic and to get beyond it get our economy back on its feet and help all the people who've been so badly harmed um, by the pandemic and the economic havoc it's um, caused. A great interview with Sarah, David. Uh, And we've talked about uh, the implications of that kind of stimulus, both intended and unintended consequences. I don't know if you've seen some of the Q1 estimates to GDP, but Atlanta Fed's now at 9.5. Goldman just went to 6. Uh, Morgan Stanley went from 3.6 to 7.5. So, I mean, whether you believe it's going to cool off in the back half of the year, first half of the year looks hot. Yeah, it does. Uh, And and then, you know, even some of those 22 numbers are quite strong. And that continues to be kind of the question. Will there be a real follow through? But, you know, Carl, I've been mentioning this during the course of our broadcast recently. I'll probably continue to. I mean, the conversations that I have with asset allocators, many of them hedge fund managers, usually uh, include two topics. One, SPACs. Do you have one? Why don't you have one? I got to get one. I got to start one. I haven't started one. Oh, have you heard about mine? Can I book my guest on? We're de next week. And then the other subject, of course, is uh, are we going to run really hot? And what's going to happen to the market? Uh, are we going to put uh, a lot more money in a lot of people's checking accounts that's going to end up uh, in the market? Is there going to simply be even more purchases, Leslie, of goods and services Services in particular, of course, because that has been a lagging part of the economy, given people in certain places have uh, continued to be locked down or not locked down, but not doing what they typically would. And that's the question. And what will it look like in terms of the reflection both for economic growth Mm -hmm. and back here for what it means for the overall stock market and these pockets of speculation that we've already seen 
and drawn attention to. Yeah, Yellen addressed the inflation question, saying that she wasn't too worried about it and believes that the Fed has the tools uh, to handle rampant inflation if it does uh, rear its ugly head, uh, especially given that it's run so low uh, for so many years now. And of course, she would uh, be in the position to know what tools the Fed has at its disposal, considering she uh, you know, was the chair there for, for quite some time. Uh, you know, interesting that she is, uh, you know, also tying potential tax increases to an infrastructure bill. That's something that people were concerned about, especially as they look at stimulus and what it does uh, for the budget deficit, the potential for tax increases, which she said uh, would be gradual in nature, Carl. So, uh, you know, no real details on what form those tax increases could come in. Uh, but that's another thing to be looking for and potentially could have implications on some of this overheating that we're seeing as well with regard to the economy. Yeah. Also touched on crypto, as Andrew was just talking about with Ken Griffin a moment ago, uh, called it a highly speculative asset, at least on the Bitcoin front, David. But that, that always brings us back to what she said in 2014 about small caps and small cap biotech. It's always hard when you try to uh, pigeon either a Treasury secretary or a Fed chair yep. on individual asset classes. I, I think we pinned that on some somebody in her staff who maybe had lost some money in some small tech, small cap biotechs. <laughs> we, we, we never really I don't know that we were certain as to whether Yellen signed off fully on that uh, that commentary. But I do remember that. <laughs> Uh, Carl quite well. You know, it's interesting listening to Griffin uh, just saying no thanks on uh, on Bitcoin, Leslie. When Andrew actually asked him to engage on it, he gave a three word answer, essentially saying, I just don't pay. Well, maybe it's more than three words, but it wasn't many more. Uh, it doesn't pay really attention to it. Obviously, the market continues to. And it's been a continuing story for us as we watch it cross the 50,000 mark only a few days back. Yeah. And nearing that one trillion dollar market cap level. I mean, it seems like only yesterday that we were talking about, you know, Apple hitting a trillion dollar market cap, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Bitcoin now. Uh, and also, you know, we are starting to see, you know, certain hesitancies, obviously Griffin, Griffith, the most uh, recent one. But also there was a note from J.P. Morgan this morning uh, addressing Bitcoin, calling it the economic sideshow, uh, saying that it really wasn't a good uncorrelated hedge to equities. Uh, that said, there was this ETF that uh, debuted in Toronto yesterday, 10 million shares uh, that had exposure to cryptocurrency uh, skyrocketed on its debut. Uh, certainly seems to be uh, very few hurdles from this investor skepticism, uh, albeit kind of sparse as it may be at this time, Carl. Yeah. Uh, guys, of course, the uh, street's still digesting everything that we got out of the House Financial Services hearing yesterday, the degree to which we learned anything new. But there were some interesting exchanges, uh, especially with Vlad Tenev of Robinhood. Listen to this. At that exact moment, did, did you have the liquidity for $3 billion? 5.11 a.m.? At that moment, uh, we would not have been able to post the three billion in collateral. Leslie, I've been I've been dying to know what lessons you drew from any of the Q and A. Yeah, I think that exchange right there was the most revealing because we have seen a little bit of this back and forth uh, from Tenev over the past few weeks about 
what his company was really going through during January 28th that led them to the decision to restrict trading in certain securities. So was there a liquidity problem? Was there not a liquidity problem? He kind of has gone back and forth over what exactly was going on. Uh, of course, they were ultimately able to raise $3.4 billion in venture capital. They were able to re- restrict uh, buying of certain securities, which limited their volatility profile, requiring them to post less collateral uh, to their clearing houses. But he admitted in that exchange right there that, yes, at that point in time, we had a big problem. And what's important about that is not just that it's a Robin Hood story and, and you know, this will go away as some kind of blip, but it exposes potential vulnerabilities in the system. It exposes potential risks in the system. You know, I remember that morning I was talking to hedge fund managers across the street and they were saying, you know, if, if Robin Hood has a liquidity problem, that's a big issue for the broader market as well. So this is something that would affect everybody. And, and I'm really looking forward to speaking uh, with Representative Gonzalez next hour about this very exchange and, and, you know, what it means to him and the rest of the lawmakers with regard to, you know, potential regulation needed. Um, you know, because unlike FDIC insured deposits, these, these are not, they, they don't have the same kind of protection right now. So if Robinhood were liquidated, uh, that would be a, a, a big problem for its 13 million customers, David. Yeah, they, they, I don't think they fully understood the risks inherent in their business, I think, Leslie. And, right. you know, the first lesson, of course, um, when you have a liquidity problem is never admit you have a liquidity problem. Right. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's one, two, and three in the list. <laughs> don't ever admit it, because when you do, then you do. Uh, then you got an even bigger problem. Uh, and so you could, uh, you could expect that Mr. Tenev would have, you know, danced whatever dance he needed to to avoid that question at the time in, in question. But there's no doubt they did. Right. There's no doubt they did. They had not anticipated, of course, as few could have, what, what, what went on during the course of those few days. Uh, and they clearly needed a lot of money and they needed it fast. Uh, thankfully, they were able to get it. Yeah. He called it a 1, 1 in 1.35 million uh, event. So a, a five sigma event, something that was rare, unexpected. Uh, I don't know, David. I, I don't know how statistically rare something like this is, how uh, likely it is to happen again. Uh, you know, nothing has, has structurally changed that could prevent, you know, a group of traders from causing volatility in some illiquid names. I, it, I know. Listen, I feel like have, uh, I've had a fairly long career at this point, Carl, but I feel like I've lived through a lot of those one in one and a half million events. I mean, long-term capital, those, those <laughs> yeah. geniuses, remember them with all their Nobel Prizes? That also was like, well, whatever, yes. I don't know how to express it, but never could happen. And, of course, it did. I mean, we can go down the list. These things happen a lot more often than you think, given the odds. Yeah. No, we are living in, in the age of black swans, David. There's, that's well said. Um, to the degree that there's going to be follow-up hearings, of course, on policy and regulatory follow-ups, um, we'll keep an eye out. By the way, uh, Griffin's interview, although full of very truncated answers with Andrew, uh, was pretty good. He did talk about this notion and this um, allegation that hedge funds somehow had influence over the restrictions of trades on Robinhood. Here's what Griffin said. The big picture is this conspiracy theory that we somehow or another are like some of the big tech giants that have access to personal identifying information is just flat out false. We have a price, quantity, a limit, that's what comes to us in an order from a retail broker. All right. So, Leslie, how much skepticism is that going to be met with? I 
I mean, I think it will be met with skepticism, but I think this idea of data collection is what brought the whole payment for order flow controversy to the fore in the first place. People realized that, oh, if we're trading for free, someone must be paying for it. They later learned that it was Citadel Securities and other market makers who have this whole process called payment for order flow, and people started analogizing that to the big tech giants and saying, what do they do with our data? What do they do with our information? I don't want these big Wall Street firms having my information and and doing something nefarious with it. Um, You know, it's obviously a different business than what, you know, big tech companies do with regard to targeted advertising and other things of that nature. You know, they, the information, the, the, the data that they are collecting is just based on trading and they make money on the spread. They're not selling your data elsewhere. They're not, um, you know, using it in, in other ways. It's the, the money making occurs based on executing that trade at a certain price. Um, So that's interesting point number one. Another thing that came out yesterday in the hearing was uh, this idea that Melvin Capital, which of course has become, uh, you know, targeted on these Wall Street bets forums is kind of the poster child of, of the hedge fund industry being on the other side of that GameStop trade. They suffered 53% losses as a result. Uh, Gabe Plotkin, though, noted that at this time they now have uh, data scientists in-house who are now combing through data on Reddit forums. So we've kind of gone full circle. They clearly yeah. don't want to make that mistake again. So they are uh, very closely monitoring what is said, not just about the firm, which uh, there still is quite a bit said about Melvin Capital, but uh, just also about various stocks and, and, and what kinds of vul- vulnerabilities they might have uh, to the next GameStop, perhaps. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, yeah. Carl. In, uh, in D- Sorkin's David- interview, Carl, uh, Riffin did question how long that trend will continue. How long will this Reddit play, so to speak, actually be in play? And he didn't as none of us do, he didn't really know, but he certainly indicated it's a significant one right now. Yeah, I tweeted um, a job posting yesterday uh, from a quant fund that is, uh, has an opening for what they're calling a sentiment trader, uh, pays 200K, uh, where you'll, quote, spend most of your time on Reddit, on Discord chats and Twitter to feel the pulse of tens of millions of retail traders. So I don't know if that's going to be a thing, David. It seems a little bit of an outlier, but clearly they're going to have to recalculate uh, their exposure and um, I guess their reaction to whatever retail may hand them. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. I know. And again, the question is, how long will this trend continue? Will it only be, frankly, exacerbated by the fact that, again, back to the potential $1.9 trillion uh, uh, bill working its way uh, out of the House and the Senate, will it be, you know, when people have $1,400 checks? Now, many of them need the money to pay for food, but there is this idea that some of it will end up, as Goldman Sachs indicated earlier this week, Carl, in savings uh, and or in the market. And so, you know, how long will this be with us is one question. At some point, one would imagine they'll come up with an AI that will take the place of the person who's trying to figure out sentiment. <laughs> right. As well as TV anchors and everybody else. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, guys, we'll take a break here. Uh, we're going to dive into what's happening in Texas today and what may happen over the weekend. The implications for not just uh, chip shortages, but auto production, food supply, and a, a lot more. We'll get into that when we come back. We're back in a minute. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shei 
Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. The semiconductor industry now facing another challenge related to that shortage, and that's the weather. Our Josh Lipton has more on that. Morning, Josh. So, Carl, just when they are needed the most, chip plants are now getting shut down. That's due to these severe winter storms we're seeing in Texas, which have left so many suffering, and they are impacting business, too. Now, forcing chip makers around Austin to suspend operations. For example, NXP, which makes chips for cars, says it halted manufacturing at its two Austin facilities. company says once utility services are restored, its team can evaluate when full production resumes. Samsung, one of the biggest chip makers, is feeling the bite as well. It had to gradually halt operations in Austin after being ordered to do so by local authorities. Analysts estimate that the plants represent about 30% of Samsung's overall production capacity. Infineon, also impacted, now idling its Austin plant. Company spokesperson saying the company is evaluating the impact and following local guidelines on reopening. Remember, all this is happening during the most serious chip shortage in years. It's impacting production on everything from computers to cars. Chris Queso at Raymond James says these shutdowns could exacerbate the problem. That is not good news for chip customers like the automakers, but it could be good, he argues, for the chip makers themselves. Shortages push out demand. They don't destroy it. In other words, these chip makers are going to still ship everything they can make and maybe even see their margins expand because they're going to have to allocate scarce supply to their highest margin customers. Chris's top picks right now, he tells me, NXP and microchip, Micron in memory, and Qualcomm in handsets. Carl, back to you. That's a great setup, Josh. Uh, Thanks, our Josh Lipton. It does remind me, by the way, Leslie, you talked about this on the show yesterday. Wells today takes Western Dig from $65 to an $85 target, but it just sort of feeds the overall narrative, and that is that we're going to be talking about scarcity in general on a Mm -hmm. host of products all year long. Absolutely. I mean, when when we look at just what, you know, four days worth of a a situation like this, where so much of the supply chain has been disrupted, look at what's going on with vaccine distribution in Texas right now. It's not just limited to chips, uh, but the whole economy in the state is basically uh, turned to a halt. And there was that really interesting article uh, in the Texas Tribune. I think it uh, came out yesterday afternoon where they said that the system was uh, within seconds or even minutes 
of having a complete failure for months on end. Can you imagine what that would mean for the state's economy, especially in a pandemic where people are so reliant on not just power to stay warm and, and do their basic jobs and lives, but, but their jobs are taking place so much more online. Their ability to connect with uh, you know, family and friends is so much more online. And so the thought of, of you know, the state of Texas not having power for months on end in the middle of a pandemic, it's just it's pretty scary when you think about it. Yeah. And uh, of course, we're going to keep an eye. This story uh, it, that uh, Josh was outlining so well for us uh, about chips is not going anywhere. We talked yesterday to Vincent Roche, CEO of uh, Analog Devices. They're going to meet their guidance, but, you know, and perhaps they can exceed it. But in part, they are reliant on other wafers coming in that they then do uh, do things with. Uh, and it's going to be a story, as he said, that we're going to be dealing with these shortages throughout the rest of the year. Obviously, we see it, Carl, perhaps uh, manifest uh, most in the auto industry. We're talking about Ford and GM, for example, but it will be sort of throughout. And then we come back to this idea of a national champion. I look at Intel there and what that will mean uh, as the U.S. government tries to sort of figure out a policy there to make sure that we have adequate supplies domestically as well of chip making ability. Do you think that M&A solves yeah. the problem at all? Uh, um, unclear, you know, unclear at this point whether that would be the case. Um, when it comes down to M&A, we obviously looking at NVIDIA, which is in a deal to acquire ARM. That certainly has some potential issues. Qualcomm has tried. Broadcom, it's possible, Leslie. And, but again, then you'd have the U.S. government sort of weighing in in a significant way from an antitrust perspective. On the other side, Carl, though, being a national defense perspective as well, given the two are, are tightly linked when it comes to, uh, to chip making. Yeah, that sort of folds into uh, the president, of course, speaking to the G7 actually right about now. Uh, and his comments are expected to emphasize less of a, quote, America first policy like his predecessors and more of a uh, multinational cooperation policy. We'll see what readout we get from that. We'll take a break, guys. Plenty of vaccine news to get to. Uh, this Israeli study on Pfizer, a couple news bits on J&J, &J, and some interesting upgrades and downgrades, including a double upgrade of KB Home out of Goldman to buy. We're back in a minute. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We were just talking about companies exposed to semis. There's AMAT this morning, going to open up almost 6%. 139 beats 128. Revenue ahead, pretty good guide. Uh, KeyBank goes to 144. Cowan goes to 145. Should be interesting. More Squawk on the Street, and the opening bell continues in just a moment. Deer's going to open close to 318 this morning. It was a $100 stock. Uh, in March of last year on, on earnings, uh, 387 crushes, 214 revenue ahead. 
Uh, they do raise their guide. David, you know, we t we've talked about deer over the years mostly as an ag play and kind of moved sideways during the trade war with China. But if infrastructure happens, we'll talk a lot more about its uh, smaller but still sizable construction business. I'm sure we will. Uh, and Cat has moved along with it as well. I'll send it back to you, Carl, because I think, if I recall, there was a time when you covered this company, wasn't there? Um, and perhaps you can give me a better sense as to, you know, what we're what, the economy we're in right now. And it seems to be playing to its strength. Obviously, farmers have been quite strong as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to tell you when I covered them because uh, kids, there are people alive now who weren't alive then. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we've moved past a period, David, where we're talking about farm income being supported by government outlays and basically socialism for the farm belt to a period where you got grains and soybeans all with strong pricing power, uh, farmers trying, you know, having paid off some debt and now saying maybe it's time to upgrade the tractor. Yeah. Carl, I think what you meant to say is there were uh, people who were who are adults now who weren't alive when you were covering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> and he's young, yeah. by the way. Well, that's going to be an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, it will be. I, but that move, I mean, look at that move. Uh, you know, Leslie, again, there's many stocks that we could put up with similar charts that this time last year or let's talk uh, a month from now, a year. 11 months ago, you would, you would never have anticipated the moves that they've had. No. I mean, Deer has certainly been a beneficiary of some stockpiling that's been going on that's helped uh, boost the prices of a lot of commodities that help their uh, downstream customers. And, and therefore, as Carl was mention, mentioning, they were able to uh, use that additional revenue and come from a position of strength where they can pay off some debt, they can upgrade their machinery, and that, of course, helps Deer. Yep, we'll see how that uh, feeds into the overall tape this morning as we get the opening bell and the S&P there at the bottom of your screen. As we said, uh, we're coming off three straight losses for the S&P, which we've not done since December. Uh, but the Dow, uh, largely because of their exposure perhaps to more financials, is still on track for a weekly gain. Um, David, we haven't yet mentioned some of the vaccine news, but this Israeli study uh, on the Pfizer vaccine that basically argues 85% efficacy after one dose um, but after about 15 to 28 days is pretty encouraging. And uh, by the way, Pfizer also now submitting some new data uh, to the FDA on um, lowered on temperatures that would be more like standard refrigeration, at least for a couple of weeks, which would definitely help logistics. All of that would. Right. Uh, being able to move it uh, more easily, obviously not requires quite as much refrigeration. And that 85 percent number is uh, is something worth noting, as you already have, Carl, because uh, it may mean that we change the protocols to some extent or are not as concerned with people getting their second dose immediately and therefore being able to inoculate more people more quickly and bring it to, a, to an end, uh, Leslie, or at least get to that so-called level of herd immunity. I'll leave it to all the, the epidemiologists out there to, to take it from there, but yeah. it's certainly potentially positive. Now. Yeah. Especially if you're going to need a booster shot to kind of take on some of these variants anyway. Uh, you know, again, not an epidemiologist, certainly not an expert here, but uh, it sounds like encouraging news on that front. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, this Bloomberg story that uh, noted that there's a vaccine surge coming. Uh, they, they looked through a variety of comments from the drug makers and the government and studied some of the supply deals. Uh, and they found that uh, the U.S. government is currently constrained to about 10 to 15 million uh, doses per week right now. And that figure could go up to 20 million in March, more than 25 million in April and May and 30 million a week in June. So by summer, that would be 
almost or more than four times the amount of uh, shots going into arms per day that we're seeing today. So also encouraging news, at least on the supply front, uh, you know, potentially a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know what that means for the three of us <laughs> and others who are still waiting their vaccine. But, um, you know, a, a slew of, of relatively encouraging news on the vaccine front today, Carl. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. Yesterday, JPM had a note out, guys, just on Israel, not looking at, a, at any global picture. But given 40 percent of Israelis have been vaccinated at this point, their baseline scenario at JPM for Israel is that new infections and deaths go to zero by the middle of the year, which uh, kind of sounds too good to be true. And there's lots of caveats about why the U.S. may not be quite a perfect analog. But that would be obviously amazing if they could essentially wipe this out uh, by, for all intents and purposes by by the middle of summer. Speaking of all the reopening stuff, David, uh, I don't know if you noticed UAL um, announcing new service from Boston to London. Mm -hmm. uh, six flags today with a note out saying they're going to hire to have all their parks and water parks open by the summertime. So that reopening plays uh, definitely evident today. No doubt. And I think that there are many investors right now who are wondering just what the how much demand there will be for for airlines, uh, for seats on airplanes. Carl, when we do get to full reopening, and perhaps, you know, by the summer that will be the case, one would imagine there is a great deal of pent-up demand to go places. Uh, and so we could see a real spike and perhaps an ability of the carriers to raise prices significantly given the demand that they may see. At least that is one thesis that's out there. Again, we'll see how it plays out, but you can see the stocks are responding quite positively uh, this morning, at least, as you said, to, uh, to various news and at least UAL increasing uh, flights and or uh, destinations. Um, where are we? 933. I think I only mentioned SPACs once. You know, on the, <laughs> when, when uh, the ringing the bell there was Butterfly, that was Jonathan Rothberg, who's joined us a couple of times. SPACs have been very good to him, uh, of course, and Butterfly has been one of them, uh, which has been very good overall. Did want to get to our weekly SPAC roundup, if we can. And Leslie, I'm glad you're here because you've been following this uh, this story, this trend very closely. I wasn't kidding earlier when I said there's two things hedge fund managers want to talk about. It really is basically the economy, what's going to mean for the overall market, uh, and their SPACs or their lack of a SPAC or their plan to have a SPAC. Many of them, frankly, making more money from their SPACs and or investing in them than they have from running their hedge funds. Uh, you know, one hedge fund manager is saying to me, nobody wants to put money in a long, short hedge fund, but they're going to give me plenty of money for my SPAC. Um, it's true. The numbers this week, let's give them to you, 16. So it's down from last week. Uh, again, these are from our friends at SPAC, uh, SPAC Analytics. Uh, 16 uh, raised $3.4 billion. But here's the real interesting number. 160 SPACs have already gone public this year, right? So what are we, six weeks into the year, something like that? And 143 have filed. So with the SEC to go public and have yet to do so. So you can see we are quickly approaching uh, over 300. Uh, and then the question will become, Leslie, what do they all look for? What do they all go after? Are they chasing after similar names? Or do we get, in terms of quality, uh, lower and lower on that? We've already seen so many of these companies that are really development stage still. They're taking what would otherwise be kind of late, mid to late stage venture capital money. Instead, they're taking it from the SPAC and going public. Uh, and we talk about them. We had we've had them on TV and many of them look very promising. But the question becomes how many will actually follow through to real profitability when they're talking about multiples on numbers that are five or six years out. And there's just to put it in perspective where we are this year versus last year already.
Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we are definitely on pace to surpass last year's just monstrous year in SPACs. Uh, but you bring up the point of, you know, how it impacts the hedge fund and private equity industry, this idea that people really do see an easier path to making a lot of money uh, by going the SPAC route versus by going the traditional private equity venture capital hedge fund route. Um, the question I have is how does a SPAC, and David, you might know the answer to this, mm. uh, how does a SPAC impact their LPs? Do the LPs, I know it differs largely based on the SPAC and the way it's set up, right. but do LPs in said hedge fund or in said private equity firm also see the upside or is it just the managers uh, of the SPAC that are seeing the huge dollar signs by doing this? I'm just trying to wrap my head around, you know, obviously the manager of the SPAC benefits, but is there right. also I don't believe so. I LPs? don't believe so. Uh, but it's a good question, but I, don't, I think it is a separate entity run by the hedge fund manager based on their expertise in picking stocks and therefore their ability to potentially pick targets for said SPAC that they are sponsoring. Yeah. Um, and, and let's not forget, hedge funds obviously benefiting, as are many investors here, just from buying on the initial public offering of the SPACs. Sometimes they get redeemed, but they still own the warrants. They arbitrage that. They're also, the SPACs, Carl, are just going up as we show our SPAC post-deal. I'm glad we got that. So that's after the, the deal announcement, right, on their way to de-SPACing, as Butterfly did. That's why they were ringing the bell. Now they're just a regular public company. We can't say they're a SPAC anymore. They fall out of this. Uh, and then we've got the... Uh, the index that just shows we went public as a SPAC. There's Butterfly, which has been an incredible performer. Uh, we went public as a SPAC, but we have yet to do our deal. And that's even more significant in a way as you take a look at it, because look where that's trading. Just showing, Carl, the overall enthusiasm for these. Uh, and it's not going to stop. And in fact, it's going to keep growing. I talk to bankers now, M&A bankers who are quite busy with deals, but frankly also spend an awful lot of time talking about SPACs and the possibility that we're going to start to see corporations as the main sponsor. Simon Property did something, but this is something that could become a lot more uh, commonplace as well. Not to mention companies using SPACs to dispose of divisions that they no longer want instead of spinning them directly or doing something else going the SPAC route, Carl. Uh, we'll keep talking about it because it is an important uh, trend that is going to, I think, be with us for quite some time. Yep, uh, taking advantage of, of where sentiment is right now, David. By the way, it sort of reminds me on a similar vein uh, of uh, companies. We mentioned uh, Chegg and Zillow yesterday taking the opportunity at these market levels to issue some new shares. Uh, Twilio uh, did announce a billion in new shares. I saw some reports on pricing somewhere around 425, I think. Uh, but that's going to be, I think, a $65 billion uh, market cap on Twilio, having come off of uh, earnings earlier in the week. So it just all feeds to what you're saying, David, and that is that people are looking for opportunities in an era where, where yield is, is a little bit tougher to find. I did want to get you. I wish Jim were here, David, because yeah. this Goldman call on KBH um, you know, the idea that a home builder at this point is worthy of an upgrade, it, it see, feels like it's a little bit long in the tooth, given what rates have done. And in fact, some of the home builders have come in a bit, KB included, but they go from, uh, from sell to buy. Um, we look for an outperform over the next 12 months. They're talking COVID secular shifts, demographic secular shifts, and then just, um, and just demand. They go from 32 to 51. Well, they were on the wrong side of the stock, I guess, for a while, Carl. Now they're now that. Yeah, that's interesting. Now they're on the right side, I guess, although the one year performance, as you see, there is not particularly strong. Uh, about a four billion dollar market cap on 
on KBH. Interesting call. Um, I did want to also move quickly on to a name that we have talked a great deal about lately. That's Palantir. Uh, it's been down uh, sharply after earnings, uh, the lockup uh, expiration uh, having just passed. And you did have some sellers. You saw the weakness in Palantir shares yesterday, but today uh, reversing uh, and reversing significantly. Did note as we all take a look at uh, Kathy Wood's Nightly rundown of what they bought and sold at ARK Investments. And they did add, what was it, 5, 5.2 million shares. Uh, so a fairly significant dollar-wise as well of Palantir. Maybe that's helping, but that stock is rebounding. Again, there were a bunch of sellers yesterday uh, getting ready for uh, or uh, taking advantage of the expiration uh, of the lockup. And, you know, there's still going to be questions in this market, Leslie, as well, just about multiples. I, I come back to that Goldman report saying a 30 plus percent top line grower is deserving of a 44 multiple to sales on 21 sales Ooh. that were they were speaking specifically of Palantir Goldman when they did upgrade the stock earlier this week. I don't know. Huh. Um, and meanwhile, I take a look at the likes of a Viacom, which just kept going up and up and up and up. I keep pointing it out because it's extraordinary. And the fact is that it's now trading at a higher multiple on 23 numbers than Facebook. And Facebook. I'm not well, talking Palantir anymore. I'm talking Viacom and Facebook. But still, just to give you a sense of what's going on in this market. Yeah, and I just took a look at the orders by Fidelity customers, which shows kind of gives you a sense of at least that pocket uh, of the retail community and how they're trading today. Uh, Palantir, number one, most active, uh, followed by Apple, Riot Blockchain, Tesla, which is usually among the top five uh, in Churchill Capital uh, CCIV, uh, which is another Michael Klein SPAC that everybody is very excited about, a potential merger there. Uh, so definitely caught the interest of the Wall Street Bets community. Really during the hearing yesterday, people were talking about that, Carl. <laughs> yes. Yeah, GME had some pops intraday uh, based on what was being said on that virtual hearing. Um, guys, uh, we do have Caterpillar uh, leading the Dow. That's an all-time high on Cat, probably off of the deer news. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hi, Bob. Good morning, guys. Uh, of course, uh, Janet Yellen talking stimulus. That kind of helps the market a little. And it also helps that semis have been turning around. We had a rough week, a really rough week and a half on semiconductors. But I think applied materials is really helping. Take a look at the sectors. There you see, you haven't seen semis as a leader in a while, folks. And that's a good sign. We need technology to lead. It's been very flattish in the last week and a half. Apple is down again today and again this week. So tech's got to step up here. Banks doing a little bit better. Industrials, here's the reopening trade. Energy, a little bit on the flat side they're a little weaker you know oils down u.s is reopening talks with iran there uh uh, just want to mention applied material because it's moving the semiconductor space. Uh, we're at a historic high. I think 118 was the old historic high for applied materials. But the important thing here is just an incredible uh, earnings report. Beat, raised in the quarter, a strong outlook. The semiconductors are on fire because demand is exploding across th the three areas that really matter to them. And uh, 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 Gary Dickerson, the CEO of Applied Materials, was talking about this this morning. Cloud services data center, they expect demand to grow 15% this year. Automotive because chips are all over cars these days. Demand up 15%. Uh, 5G handsets, they're expecting double-digit gains. So demand is exploding right across uh, the board. Uh, the other great earnings report today was Deere. I know Carl mentioned it. Uh, 
huge beat. The beat was 80% above the street estimates. That's amazing. And they had big boost in the full year guidance. And here you look at their construction business. It's going to be, uh, was up 21%. The small agriculture, there's the farm equipment stuff up 27%. And they have another division. They reordered this a little bit. Uh, precision, uh, that was up 20. Everything's up 20% overall. And this is before COVID. This is the quarter that was already over. So Deere is also, of course, at a historic. I think 317 was the old historic high. You see, we're sitting well above that right now. Finally, just want to mention the whole Robin thing and, thing, and the key takeaway. And he, here's what really matters. The most important thing was that payment for order flow generally works if you get best execution. That word is going to get a lot of attention in the next few weeks. It generally involves best price, but also can involve price improvement. You heard Ken Griffin talking about this a lot, price improvement. What does it involve? Well, it's competitive. Brokers have these, brokers like Schwab, they have these routing wheels that send the orders to the market makers with the best price improvement. So Citadel, Virtus, Susquehanna, they all compete to provide that best execution, best pricing, price improvement. And if they don't, they get less orders from the brokerage. So it's the brokerages that actually are out there making sure they do it because they want to show their customers and their regulators that they are indeed providing best execution. So Watch that word. People are going to hold them to that. And I think, guys, here, the key is that market makers like Citadel are able to provide price improvement for a couple of reasons. Number one, they do they internalize. They pay. They fill these orders from with their own stock. They don't go out to exchanges where they'll have to pay rebates. That helps them. And number two, Ken Griffin emphasized this. They're able to bid in sub-penny increments. The stock exchange can only bid in one-penny intervals between the bid and the ask. The, the non-exchanges, they can do sub-pennying, and that enables to provide very, very modest price improvement below a penny that actually gets them that order flow. That's an advantage that they really have right now, and even Ken Griffin admitted that he'd like to see a more level playing field to a certain extent with the rest of the exchanges. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob, we'll see you in a little while. Uh, Bob Pisani, there's a lot to watch on the rate front and the currency front today as well. Let's get to Rick. Yes, Carl. And before we even get to the charts, let's look at what's going on with our February preliminary read on the market, M-A-R-K-I-T, Manufacturing Composites and Service PMIs, and they're hitting the wires. 58.5 is on the Manufacturing PMI. That is interesting because it backs away a bit from the cycle high, recent cycle high of 59.2. If we look at the composite at 58.8, that usurped its cycle high, COVID cycle high, by one-tenth from 58.7, which was the cycle high. And finally, we'll finish up with the service composite PMI. This is the largest swath of the U.S. economy. And at 58.9, it usurps the 58.4 that was the final read, the high post-COVID, and that was in November. So definitely some improvement there, but remember, these are preliminary. Now let's get to the charts. And you know what? A week to date tells you a lot of information on 10-year note yields. Of course, we are now up 10 basis points on 10s, 10 basis points on 30s for the week. These are substantial moves. But if you think they're only in the U.S., you're wrong. It's all high-quality sovereign debt. If you look at what's going on with regard to 10-year boons. Here's a one-year, excuse me, here's a one-year chart of our 10s. You can see the move, one-year highs plus. Look at boons for a one-year perspective. Not quite at the one-year mark, but we're definitely testing some key levels. And in this case, that 
minus 27, and we want to pay attention to that. And finally, a one-year of the UK gilt, their sovereign, at 68 basis points. You can clearly see the run-up, and it will continue, in my opinion, as we continue to make progress, of course, against COVID. And you see these large stimulus plans being floated, not only in the U.S., but other large economies as well. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick. Thanks, Rick Santelli. We'll see you in a little while. Keep your eye on the drop box today. Uh, shares are down a touch uh, despite a beat on the top and the bottom line. Uh, more paid users, uh, better than expected revenue per user. They did guide a little light on full year revenue. Um, do have some price target increases, though. JPM goes from 29 to 34. Stocks down, though. We're back in a moment. Disney's an interesting story this morning, uh, still up 4% for the year, uh, but uh, down detector with some reports this morning that uh, downloads or streaming of the new episode of WandaVision caused some technical difficulties for Disney+. Plus. Uh, talk about a first world problem, but Disney hanging on to 184. More Squawk on the Street continues in just a moment. Welcome back. Your grandma isn't the only one having trouble getting the vaccine. Bertha Coombs explains as we close out the hour. Bertha, what's going on with corporations? You know, Leslie, large employers of essential workers feel an urgency to get their employees vaccinated. But like the rest of us, they're struggling to get their shots. Tyson started vaccinations for workers in Illinois, Virginia and Missouri yesterday. But they got a total of just a thousand doses for the three plants. Up until now, they've gotten maybe 25 to 50 doses at a time for nurses and staff over 65. But with 120,000 workers across 24 states, they're really taking every Every dose they can get. We're not turning down any opportunity to obtain vaccine for our team members. Yeah, opportunities are few and far between, though. Tyson and other meatpacking firms have come under fire for widespread outbreaks early in the pandemic. Managers at its Iowa plant fired after betting on how many workers would get sick. It's prompted a congressional probe. But in the last year, they've instituted testing and other safety measures with their occupational health provider. And they've been using the time to educate workers about the vaccine. But the missing piece is supply. We're coming to uh, these um, jurisdictions asking for, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred doses. They don't know going in sometimes how much they'll have uh, to actually allocate to us. Um, and so that's part of the challenge is really not having that line of sight. Tough for local officials when they've got Walmart, Amazon, and other employers asking for big allotments as well. In the meantime, Tyson is giving workers four hours of paid time off if they can get appointments to get their shots off-site. Carl? You know, Bertha, it raises an interesting question. You know, uh, there's certain livestock where you process by automation, but when it comes to chicken, it's very hard to process by machine those smaller animals, and that's why you and have to have workers end up being close together at, at the facility. Yeah, they do, and they, you know, they've done some partitions with plastic sheeting, and obviously they have masking and they have testing. But ultimately, the, the best thing is going to be for people to be vaccinated. The one thing that helps is with this time, they've really been able to get more people convinced that they should get the vaccine. But the more people who get it, that is really the best evidence that it's safe. 
and they are just waiting, like everybody else, for more supply to come online. Bertha Coombs. Uh, thanks, Bertha. We'll talk to you in a little bit. Bertha Coombs, thank you. Uh, Dow's up 51 points on this Friday. More Squawk in the Street continues in a minute. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.